welcome to After Jet, a podcast all about the lives and careers of the Jet alumni community. With me, Aiden Law. We've got good stories, and we want to share them. And our story, this episode or episodes for this will be a two-parter, will be about one person's quest to record other people's stories for a documentary film. I'll be joined by my occasional co-host David Rowling as we interview our guest Rebecca Chen about post-jet blues, learning about documentary filmmaking. And the state of immigration and refugee issues in America under Trump. Whew! Bet you didn't expect that. Let's get into it. Let's start with uh, when you were on jet and where were you on jet? So I was on jet from 2014 to 2017. And I lived in Akita Prefecture. My town, quote unquote town, was actually—it's、uh, called. They call themselves a city,、um, and they're basically like this conglomeration of four smaller towns that merged together.、Uh, but within that, I was in a town called Takanosu, and、um, it was—it was quite rural, as most of Akita is. So、mm-hmm. more, you know, rice than people. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, no. Snow, no, snow like it snows in winter and it gets up to like here, basically. Yeah, it's definitely snow country. How do you feel being back? And I don't know, just a general overview. Ah,、uh, is that's a question I've had difficulty answering. Yeah. Like ever since I've come back, <laughs> um, because that's obviously something that everyone wants to know. Uh, but there. Usually not interested in a full answer, so I've never been able to develop a full answer. <laughs> I'll try. It was、um, just like the most unreal period of my life、uh, in the best way possible.、Um, like I, I moved there right after I graduated from college, so、uh, I was twenty one, just turned twenty two, and then I came back right after I turned twenty five. So I think. Um, as somebody who is 25 now,、uh, having spent like these really formative years abroad with new company,、um, you know, in a place that I called my own, with a, my own car, with my own workplace that was close to my house,、uh, like I got to feel like an adult time,、um, kind of like truly everything that I could have been, I was. And、uh, since moving back, you you know, I don't have my own place, and I I have my own car. Um, I don't have my own work, so I don't have any way of kind of、uh, validating my self worth through my work anymore.、Um, so all those things are gone, and I feel you know as far from being an adult as possible. So,、uh, you mean coming、um, back, coming back to、uh, America, you feel less of an adult because you have less independence. Yeah, less independence, just less things that I can kind of personally claim. Um, like uh, I made my own friends in Japan and back here. I have friends, but they, you know, missed out on three years of my change and my growth. So in a way, I'm different. You know, that's not always easy to admit.、Um, and they've changed in their own ways too,、mm. uh, despite us keeping in touch. So、mm. everyone's a little bit different, and、um, you know, people don't live as close to me as before because it was a super small, like Inaka town. And、uh, here in New Jersey, it's a small state. It's a it's the、mm. four, third smallest state in the country. <coughs> But like you can only get to anywhere by car, so、uh, it's not 
that convenient to see people. So um, I was not only, you know, like more independent in Japan, but also like more well connected. Mm. So I yeah. miss all those the things. Integration is very strong there. But I think you summarize it very well. Like you said, it was a very unreal experience there, kind of perfectly timed in your same uh, outside of college it was a very formative experience to just kind of skip those early 20s of jumping around in jobs and work and so on and and be in japan yeah it's definitely yeah. a period of life mm. yeah for sure and i knew that um when i was in japan you know there was facebook and stuff to keep you in touch with other people and um you'd hear about people going through their first or second jobs like during you know, my time as an ALT for three yeah. years. So uh, I had a kind of stability that was really not common for people in their early 20s. <laughs> I had reached, you know, a level of adulthood that um, was really uh, mm. just so, um, what's the word, like fragile, um, mm. but so real at the same time. And uh, when you're surrounded by other jets on the jet program, you think like that's all there is. And you kind of get into this fantasy, like, this can last forever. <laughs> Who would want to leave? Um, and some but, don't for up to five years, and then they have to leave. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, Or they get married, and they stay there forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely yes. know a few um, in my town. Uh, there's a, a person from the UK. Like, he stayed on for five years, and then he got married to a local girl. And then he started his own Eikaiwa business, essentially. And he's still there. I think he's been there for 10 years now. Yeah. Stories like that are also not uncommon where I am. So, yeah, um, you know, like being, when you're like a first or second, you're surrounded by people who've been there for like seven plus years. It's kind of <laughs> like, how do you get there? <laughs> well, you also, now the other thing I noticed though is that when you have people like the veterans, and it's usually people who have been there for like past the seven year mark, there's yeah. this kind of really kind of growing bitterness and frustration with the culture too. Oh no. And it's, you kind of see that and you're like, Oh, maybe I should leave while I'm like feeling great about things rather than staying until it, you know, gets stale. I think and I, I really felt that cause I was there for five mm -hmm. and mm, some of the people had been there for like 10 years would just be at the, dead events and they'd be just complaining the whole time. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I was in the same kind of town as you, Rebecca, where it was really a conglomeration of villages and towns. Mm -hmm. And it felt quite uh, like a close knit community. And in some ways they were really open and curious to strangers. And we know that's not a universal experience for all jets throughout Japan, sometimes maybe closer to the urban areas where they're a little bit more jaded. They've seen foreigners before, things like that. But in the smaller Inaka places, they have a real curiosity about outsiders. They, they welcome them and they seem open to treating you as one of their own more so than other places. But maybe that's just me. I mean, I've only been there for a short period of time. Definitely not five years. Not not long enough for for stage two. Sort I'll of. second that, Eden. Yeah. What yeah. Would you say to that, Rebecca? Actually, going off of what you said, David, I think it's really interesting uh, that you were also surrounded by you know people who've been there for a long time and yeah. grew to be quite cynical. Mm -hmm. 
unfortunately mine was the opposite and like everyone who stayed there really loved it so oh. you'd have to be really cynical to leave <laughs> <laughs> but like i loved being there and uh eventually i made the choice to leave because i thought that it was just kind of it was getting too comfortable there mm. um and i wasn't finding fulfillment in my work yeah i think that is there is something to be said about like inaka communities and it's quite I guess contradictory to what you would think a small sort of closed off village would be like because my town was definitely conservative um and they you know there were like uh abishinzo pictures everywhere <laughs> uh and uh so i knew that they um had pretty traditional views yeah. of the world and yet for such a small town with actually quite a high ratio of alts who are all american in my in my town city town uh, I was the only like Asian American at the time too, but they loved getting to know us and we had a really good reputation there. And when they were community events, um, at least one of us would always show up to go to them. Yeah. So, uh, they loved seeing us. They loved getting to know us. And we were just, uh, kind of scattered throughout the, the four towns that became this, this one city. So each town sort of felt like they had their own ALT and they were quite proud of them. Uh, so, you know, kids would, you know, of all ages from through from elementary through junior high would uh, get to see this one foreigner. And oftentimes there would be siblings between the two. So these families would be talking about this ALT. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, not that I would be, you know, be there for, for these conversations. But, um, yeah, I, I felt really, really welcomed and parents knew me, even though I didn't know them, um, which I guess is always the case for an ALT. Yeah, yeah I was, you know. <laughs> um, the previous that I was also in a Ninaka community. I was in Nagano Prefecture. Oh wow! So um, a small town called Na Nakano, Nagano, Nakano. Yeah, um, wait, wait, wait. Um, what years were you there? Uh, two thousand eight, two thousand thirteen. We might get to talk about this later, but oh. I there's a town in Nagano I can't remember, but it's near an onsen that's famous. That's all I know. Those are onsen. There's many onsens. I know. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's a lot of onsen. Yeah. Um, but okay. so, yeah. We'll probably talk about this later. But I was in Uganda for uh, a little over a week back in January, and okay. um, on the flight back from Uganda to, we had to stop in Amsterdam. I sat in the wrong seat, and the guy next to me uh, happened to be on the jet program. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, and this came about when, um, everywhere. I know I was just like, and this is a, you know, flights from Uganda aren't books like all the way. So <laughs> it, you know, it echoes on, on the cabin. Um, um, so like of all people to like find, he, he was asking me, I think, uh, like, oh, what do you do for work? And I had to say, like, oh, I don't do anything now, but I used to teach English in Japan for three years. And then he was like, oh, was it the JET program? And I was like, how do you know about the JET program? And he was like, because I was on the JET program. And I'm like, yeah. you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, and he was in Nagano, too. What, but, was, his, what uh, was his name? Just just throw it. Like, his name, name was Charlie. Um, and okay. he's from England. He okay, from I don't think I met a Charlie there, but yeah. You never know how it, it's, it feeds in, but... Um, hmm. Right. I'm really actually upset that I didn't get any of his contact information, too, so I have no way of finding him again. 
Well, Charlie, if you're listening, please get in contact with us. And Rebecca's waiting to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, this is a, a misconnection. No. Um, but no, he was uh, really uh, great because he was also, he happened to be doing the kind of work that I want to get into. So uh, it was just really timely and just really great. So, like of all, you know, of all like Jet alumni for me to possibly meet too, like I couldn't believe that I got to meet him. But we didn't get to talk a lot because it was a long flight back and it was nighttime so we were sleeping and things like that so you said the kind of work you want to do and so on so yeah so i'll get into that uh, <laughs> my um intended profession is to uh it's it's there's no position exactly but i would love to work with refugees mm -hmm. and immigrants and migrant workers um and this is kind of based off of my experiences in japan uh because mm -hmm. like i said before I lived in a small town and I was the only Asian American. Um, my parents are from Taiwan. They are immigrants and they came here, met each other here in America. And, and then me and my sisters were born. Uh, but when I moved to this tiny town in Japan, even before I went to Akita, everyone thought that I was Japanese. Um, I'm sure I, I experienced yeah. it before. Yeah, right? I know what that feels like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's 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 really it's really humbling at first because especially if you don't know any Japanese, so you're just mm -hmm. they think you're Japanese until you speak, and mm -hmm. then they know. Um, but, but especially like in my town too, like that they don't get so many that they can just cough me up to like, oh, it's one of those non-Japanese speaking Asian Americans again. Uh, I was the first one, I think. Um, but uh, that really you know forces an Asian American to uh, learn Japanese quickly. Um, or any, you know, Asian descent, ALT, yeah. Jet person. Um, but yeah, so I, I basically passed as a Japanese person. <laughs> um, and that afforded me these privileges that I, um, like, really didn't deserve. Like, uh, you know, we were teachers, so by bestowing the sensei title onto us, we already have access to so many things in, in, in government and society, uh, mm. like, status-wise. Um, but in my town, I noticed that there were like often um, like groups of women who walk on the side of the road uh, to work and yeah. uh, they were Chinese because yeah. we have, yeah, like factory mm -hmm. wear, yeah. textile or whatever things. Um, and uh, but like everyone knew that they were Chinese and not Japanese. Me being even more removed than they are, I didn't feel like it was fair for them to be basically discriminated in a way that I wasn't and I thought a lot about like the kinds of work conditions that they must have had because if you probably heard of the training and internship program that Japan has mm -hmm. um yeah. yeah it's like this initial bring uh, uh skilled workers to Japan to, to do all sorts of things or, yeah. like agriculture factories um, fisheries and things like that I forget what the training tip I think is it's an issue like TIPP. Yeah. Um, or I say the influx of workers that Japan is bringing into the country is also increasing with the Olympics coming up. So yeah. knowing all of this, like it made me very curious and also slightly concerned about the conditions under which these women were working. Um, and I'm able to speak Chinese. So I had to kind of get over fear and uh, approach women uh, to ask just how they were doing. Um, and that's such a weird um, situation to be in because 
you don't want to be offensive or like to express yeah. too no. much unnecessary pity. Yeah, you want to treat them like a human being. So uh, I just I I was interested in, you know, in finding more Chinese speakers in the first place. So I didn't quite come at it from you know that angle. Um, but it, it was really intimidating and uh, the conversations didn't go very far <laughs> uh, because they they mostly asked me like what job I did. I said I taught English, and they said, "How much money do you make?" I said, "I don't feel comfortable answering that." And they said, "Do you have your own car?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and they're like, "Did you buy it yourself?" I'm like, "Um, the lease." <laughs> uh, so the nature of that conversation didn't make me feel very comfortable. So I kind of backed out from that. <laughs> mm. But uh, in my town, um, there were a couple of Japanese women who gave Japanese lessons to foreigners, and oftentimes uh, ALTs went to these lessons. Um, mm. But they mostly served like the Filipino and Vietnamese women in yeah. the town there, yeah. so I got to make some Vietnamese and Filipino friends. And that's also where I got to learn more about uh, you know, the kinds of um, conditions they worked in. Um, the Vietnamese woman that I talked to, you know, she's not representative of everybody in Japan, obviously, but she was actually quite happy and, uh, I mean, happy given her circumstances and, you know, wishes she could make more money, but like does what she can and sends everything she has back home. In these conversations, you also, you also learn more about just how they live. Um, Filipino women often being married to, uh, older Japanese men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, uh. And, tend to be uh, farmers you know, too. They tend to be married to uh, farmers. I take it. Yeah. 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 But you know, they have usually pretty large families waiting back at home in the Philippines uh, mm. uh, too. So, and the culture I hear is very different um, between Japan and the Philippines too. So there's a lot for them to adjust to. Again, like more, struggling more than I ever did. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah. I thought it was really. Uh, precious to hear these conversations and it made me want to um just kind of understand the immigration process mm. better and also like different kinds of visas how you know green cards are given and um what kind of people can go to another country and you know make a yeah. life for yeah. themselves so. mm. interesting that labor visa program that you mentioned in japan i know there's i think some i think it's worked positively in some ways but there's also a lot of obviously very open negative criticism on some of the living conditions with some of the Chinese agricultural workers and so on that are pretty much brought in Japan and, you know, work on farms and are not always best treated. I guess it's, you don't have to look very far to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess I'm, I was spared from like knowing that personally from happening in my own town yeah. Uh, because our conversations never got that far, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, but if I, I don't know, I guess had chosen to stay in Japan another year, I would have made that like a personal mission to find out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and get into a whole host of trouble. <laughs> uh, it's funny how I said earlier that, uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, as, as in the, the Naka, we felt, we, I found that the well, community is so much more. Uh, welcoming and warm, but then when we talk about the conditions and the experiences of of these foreign workers, it seems it's a seems to be a pretty different situation. Well, yeah. potentially, anyway. Yeah. I know that, um, like at least for uh, like foreigners doing this kind of work, I mean the the circumstances aren't too different in urban environments as well. 
mm-hmm. um, just the, the manner of the job might be different. So like Osaka is a huge place where tons of immigrants have been going to. It's number one for like tourism, I think, in Japan right now. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there are lots of people there who do like a whole host of different kinds of odd jobs to try and survive. <laughs> and I imagine it's harsh in its, in its own way where you know you're surrounded by so many people but you don't have many close connections so yeah reminded me of the experience for one of my students uh my town had quite a large number of uh overseas workers uh, under the tipp i think that's what you called yeah. it yeah yeah quite a few of my students were mixed japanese and of another race some of the more extreme cases i guess so i've seen one student whose parents the father was japanese the mother is uh, Filipino. And one time when I was there, I heard that the student was temporarily homeless because the father threw him and his mother out of the house. So until they reconciled about a month later, uh, they were basically having to f- find accommodation almost every night just to find a place to. Uh, oh, goodness. Yeah. It's so hard. It's, it's very hard. And I spoke to the teacher because you know how the teachers in Japan, they're not just teachers, but they are also surrogate parents and their responsibility tends to go into uh, their personal lives as well of their students. Mm. And I was mentioning to her, like I saw this in the local newspaper about support for uh, victims of domestic abuse who were foreign born. And I sort of passed her that information. I didn't know, I don't know what she really did with that information. But I got the impression that perhaps I may have overstepped my boundary a little bit. Yeah. It was a little bit too much of a thing I was doing. I heard stories about things like that. And I can imagine that if, if you come to another country and your home life is not particularly a happy one, wh- where's the support for you? Where can you turn to? Yeah. It's interesting too, just um, like from my perspective, noticing how again, like you said, you're as a teacher coming from the United States working um, at a school, you're just held in a higher level because you're a sensei, right? Mm -hmm. Noticing that this double standard of, you know, how essentially us as foreigners or immigrants are treated there was very, I think, apparent sometimes. I remember working in a a classroom of Sanensei and like, you know, just talking with kids or something like that. And one of the third graders was make, we were talking about foreigners, right? Cause they were just mm-hmm. laughing, you know, oh, you have a big nose. Oh, you're from Ohio. That's funny. Ha ha. And I was like, okay. And then they're like, oh, and one, San Nense made a comment about like the Chinese people who rode their bikes in the morning to like work in the agricultural fields that live nearby. And it was just not a very respectful comment. And I was like, I was like, well, they're foreigners like me. I told him, he's like, he's like, no, they're not. He's like, you're, what did he say? You're an American foreigner and they're Chinese. And I was like, that really, that really struck with me in the classroom. And you know, the the teacher, I kind of looked at her for for support. She's just like, Oh no, that's (laughs) 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 You're a separate kind of a foreigner. Uh, If I can come up with my own uh, anecdotes, actually, I, I was born in Malaysia and I, when I came to Australia, uh, we moved to the countryside. So I came here when I was quite young. And the countryside, I was the only non-white kid of any description for yeah. quite a while. So, you know, I ran into the usual, like, you know, all Asians go home, blah, blah, blah. blah. But uh, 
And one time I said to a friend of mine, uh, who I, well, I called him a friend, a classmate of mine who was going off with, with his usual jokes and tirade about anti-Asian immigration. And I said, hey, you, you know that I'm Asian, right? Like this face isn't just for show. And, <laughs> and he said, oh, no, no, you're all right. You're one of us. You're Australian. We're, we're talking about the other types of Asians. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah, that's what I felt because it's like, you know, we're all foreigners. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Those are other kinds of foreigners. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You're fine. You're one of us. You assimilate. You want to be one of us. Right. I can't explain yeah. this in 20 minutes in school lunch, but I'll just tell you you're wrong. I'm a little topic. <laughs> 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 a little eight, eight year old kid, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. There is a uh, TV show that took off in America called Fish Off the Boat. Yes. Uh, which are based off of, you know, real life memoirs from a man named Eddie Huang, who's the chef in like the city, New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of his stories are like, you know, cut and paste from my own narrative, uh, especially, you know, being a child in a school, eating something different for lunch than everyone else and mm -hmm. uh, kids being really mean and <laughs> like saying things that I didn't understand. And uh, English is actually my second language. So I grew up uh, only speaking Chinese and uh, yeah. I had to go through ESL from uh, kindergarten, first grade to second grade. And then it's funny because now I'm like, now, I'm, now I teach English. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, something I like to say to, to students who are, you know, learning English that, you know, doesn't really, you can get to anywhere um, if you work hard, like look at me. So, um, mm. but uh, yeah, so I've had experiences uh, being bullied, I guess, and receiving racism and discrimination from peers who don't know any better, especially when we're all children. Mm. Um, mm. And I, funny thing is that my mom, she immigrated to America in her early twenties. And she <laughs> told me the longer I stayed in Japan, the more she sincerely thought I was never going to leave Japan. Uh, Cause in her case, she, she came to America and didn't, know that she was going to like never go back to Taiwan actually um and I loved Japan even before I was there so the likelihood of me staying there forever was even greater than hers so like given that and like living in Japan as a foreigner and just keeping in mind you know the hardships my mom had to go through uh, yeah. working part-time jobs and like uh, what other kids continue to experience uh, what people what children in this in this country are still experiencing because people don't accept differences uh, is like something I didn't expect to really um, face directly when I was in Japan. Um, like you said, like there were off, not often, not too often, but enough to enough um, half Japanese, half Filipino, half black children in uh, Akita for me to think that this conversation about race and accepting these people and looking beyond your national identity um, and seeing yourself as just, you know, human <laughs> yeah. was uh, an important part of my job description that um, I guess just comes with internationalization. Um, it's more than just teaching English, but teaching people to be respectful of other people. And I feel like if I wasn't Asian, uh, maybe that would have been easier <laughs> because yeah. so many people just thought, oh, I was just like them, maybe like too closely. So they could they could say things about Chinese people because I'm Taiwanese, so that's okay. Because Japan likes Taiwan, but we don't like China. We'll never like China. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's there's like that nuance to, 
to the treatment that I got to that I also thought was really unfair. Just thought it'd be interesting to mention, I guess, Rebecca, that when I was back in the States, I actually worked for about a year and a half. I worked for, um, I worked for a refugee resettlement agency. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's like exactly where I want to work. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. In my free time as somebody who's not employed right now, I decided to kind of combine um, this hobby of mine, just making videos uh, yeah. with like my kind of long-term goal. So uh, that the natural fit for that was making a documentary on refugees mm. that live in central Jersey. Yep. I should say that my experience with film and editing is very novice and I just make vlogs basically. Mm. <laughs> and that started when I um, started traveling while I was in Japan, mm. like going to, to Taiwan or to England um, or to China and making these videos so that when my students could see what life was like. Abroad. Yeah, I did, I did that also too. Great. That's great. Isn't that a great idea? Yeah, because they can't go, but you can. So and being an amateur is actually a lot more fun for them sometimes. But hmm. it, it is. is. Yeah, there's no pressure, really. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but getting to the habit of kind of, you know, editing, keeping a schedule for yourself, putting stuff together and like being really proud of the product was it's kind of it's like a high when you make it enough times. Hmm. So now I'm embarking on this long term goal to this long term project. Um, to kind of discover what it's like for refugees settling into this area. And so far there's no title, but that's okay because we haven't officially begun interview processes, interview sessions yet. Actually, a recent development just happened a couple of days ago, and we're probably going to be um, refocusing the documentary more on um, asylum seekers. In, uh, uh, totally different Georgia. category, yep. Yeah, so uh, they will probably be easier... Um, and more willing to interview with us. So, uh, yeah, what, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It's the same kind of resettlement process. So, yeah, yeah. So, because I worked with mainly refugees, because, you know, asylum seekers just, I don't know. You know. Are you aware of the differences, Eden? You probably. There are refugees, uh, refugees versus asylum seekers, you mean? Yeah, yeah. For anyone who doesn't, I guess refugees are, they come to the United States through a severely over two years vetted process. It's really strict. And, you know, the U.S. does take nine out of 10 of the world's refugees, roughly. But asylum seekers are more people who have managed to come to the U.S. US through more unofficial meaning, whether they're fleeing for their lives or escaping. Um, oftentimes, really just, you know, horrible conditions. And then once they're in the United States, then they get begin the process. Yeah. So yeah. a big yeah, distinction is just, you know, where they begin, where they apply yeah. to get into. Yeah, there's different procedures. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you start getting into this film project and how did you start meeting people to get this project rolling? I, I can't imagine, I don't know, you put something on Craigslist, for example. But <laughs> <laughs> wanted people to work with me on this documentary. I'm sure there's lots of ads like that. You might get immigration control on your doors for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on a highly confidential project. <laughs> FBI, <laughs> don't read this. Um, so I basically just put out a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, a post on, on Facebook. And I was asking if anybody had experience with videography and people started tagging, you know, their friends. And I only got like a handful of responses, oh, you um, mm. but like one was enough. I messaged some of the people, they didn't reply, that's okay. Uh, and one person I replied to replied back quite quickly and, and had said that they were actually 
doing a similar project, but it got canceled just a month prior. I, I was very glad that we were both like excited to do this. Finding um, refugees or asylum seekers to interview comes quite easily now-ish, relatively easier now, because we're working through a resettlement agency in this area. So uh, if it weren't for them, this would be much more difficult. And I, <laughs> I was kind of dreading, like, maybe we'd have to go door to door. But no, I think we'll be spared from that. So this agency is in charge of, you know, looking over the people that it helps find housing and um, uh, provides transportation to access different services in New Jersey. So yeah, they are kind of looking uh, and asking people if they'd be willing to help us with this project. And we haven't heard back from anybody uh, yet. If it's okay to ask, what's the name of the local resettlement agency in the area that you're working with? Uh, so this agency is called Interfaith RISE. Okay. Um, and RISE actually stands for uh, Refugee and Immigrant Settlement, no, Services and Empowerment. Okay. Um, and it's a conglomeration kind of of like 40 plus different faith organizations, including, you know, like there are Christians and Muslims and yeah. um, Jewish organizations that mm. uh, care about refugees in this area because New Jersey is also really diverse. <laughs> and we have a um, an immigration like detention center uh, in Elizabeth, it's a city called Elizabeth, and um, uh, the International Rescue Committee also has a branch there. Um, their headquarters is in New York, so we're all we're pretty close to these major like ports of people coming through. There are there's one in like North Jersey, uh, and there's like a couple in South Jersey, uh, but again, like even though New Jersey's so small, it's kind of annoying to get to all these places. So I just wanted to find like a niche place <laughs> i have yeah, to live in jersey so yeah mm -hmm. i think because there's such usually in any given town city like or certainly in new jersey side there, there, there will be a handful of different refugee resettlement agencies and it's probably a good approach just to build a nice close relationship with one of them yeah branch of that i would just say a little little tactics tip is that although it may not seem like it um agencies are very much competing with one another for funding and um yes and to stay afloat in this kind of environment. So yeah, stick with one just for, uh, <laughs> just for relationship wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Hmm. Um, I know that they are, you know, their financial troubles come, you know, at a, they can't support me and my partner, like in our project, yeah. uh, which makes sense. So everything right now is coming, you know, from our own pockets, yeah. basically. Hmm. Um, but uh, I know that they, this agency works really hard at uh, applying to grants and getting funds. Um, and with this current administration in place, uh, this agency partners with a, um, a US group called the US uh, Committee on Refugee and Immigration, USCRI. Hmm. And uh, they only have you know, so much money to allot to agencies and how many specific refugees that they can take care of. Yep. So when, uh, if they don't use like the money allotted to them in the first 90 days and like the money goes away and then everything else comes out of, you know, the agency's own budget, but they don't have enough. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they're not hiring right now. No, no, no. <laughs> At least <laughs> maybe that's yeah. uh, obvious. I'll, I'll but, uh, put yeah. a little, um, frosting on that, I guess, or icing on that cake. Um, I also, I was, I worked for the USCRA, but basically, um, Sounds also, cool. and, just the process, you're totally right there, is they're given a minimal amount of funding per family. 
because I worked in helping them find employment, which is ironic because I couldn't find employment when I was back in the States. It's finding other people's jobs. There's Exactly. No, we're, I relate with that so much because I'm <laughs> meeting people who are unemployed. I'm like, me too, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I feel your wavelength for sure. Yes. But um, the, the difficulty in that sense is that when you have a refugee family arrive in the United States, um, USCRI will give you money to help to like take care of their current needs and so on. And if the refugee is considered highly employable, right, they mm -hmm. give you extra money. And what happens if you can get that refugee a job within three months and make their family self-sufficient, mm -hmm. then you get to keep the leftover money for the agency. Mm -hmm. So it's not much, but they give you three grand and you're able to get them employed, you know, within a month, then the agency, and if you only spend 1500, the agent, the other 1500 goes back to the agency to keep it afloat. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of the really that's why there's such a high pressure environment to kind of, um, for lack of a better word, make sure the families are employed and self-sufficient. It's a very, it's, yeah. a, it's a tough job, I would say. It was a very challenging job. And, you know, each person at this agency is, they're understaffed and they're all working like super hard. Yeah. Um, you know, like you want to help, but you know, they wouldn't be able to, you know, compensate your work at all. Oh, so, uh, yeah, so this is like kind of, I think the best that I can do for now, um, you know, without being affiliated with any particular organization or agency right now, um, I think the best I can do is help share this process so more people understand what it's like for um, these people who come from really terrible circumstances back home and are trying to find something better here. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, just I guess, what kind of um, what populations are a lot of the asylum seekers and refugees in New Jersey? Where do they? Usually, yeah. um, so uh, I could pull up a list, but let me see if I can <laughs> call them on the top of my head. Yeah, um, a lot of they aren't too many, so I think it's about like forty something have already resettled because this agency opened up in the last like not even two years ago, so wow. they're quite young. Yeah, yeah, wow, okay. It's basically, it was in response to this president getting elected that they formed <laughs> so um which is amazing so this didn't exist you know before i left japan so i'm really glad that's amazing that they formed it in that this climate go ahead uh, a lot of them are from the drc so i think they're busy you know resettling so we're probably not going to get in touch with most of them but i know there are some people from afghanistan uh the congo wait i said that already we did a lot of resettlements from well, nepal what is it Myanmar or uh, Burma, mm -hmm. however you call it, and um, mm -hmm. and then Afghanistan and Iraq. There's an interesting distinction there. They come to the United States often on what's called SIVs, which are special immigrant visas. Yes, they've often worked with the U.S. military. Yeah, whatever project it is, so they're literally running for their lives. Um, <laughs> and they get fast processed through to the United States, but which also poses its own very very distinct challenges and in integrating into U.S. society, whereas other refugees will wait up two or three years. The, sometimes the Iraqi and Afghanistan people will just be like within a month <laughs> or two. Yeah. I don't know what it's like now. A couple of days ago, we had there was like a, a monthly meeting that this agency had, and uh, there were a couple of people we weren't allowed to film or like basically acknowledge existed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Couldn't record any audio, couldn't, you know, record them with video. So part of me is selectively like blocking things out. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
So I, I don't have, I can't tell you where all of them are from, for the better, for their protection. So. Well, well, let's go into, uh, you talked about um, this bit about the challenges of filming, because you said you had to block some of the material out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. what, are, what are the general challenges of making a film like this? Because I take it you said that you're coming from it from a novice point of view. So have you ever had any filmmaking experience, uh, putting together films, editing, things like that? So my experience with um, like making videos is pretty, you know, basic as a, I'm not a YouTuber, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but I think my vlogs reflect the fact that I've watched a lot of YouTube. <laughs> um, but the person that I'm working with is, uh, has much more experience than I do. So uh, he's been great in kind of recommending what gear to get, um, mm -hmm. which lenses to buy, uh, how to set up like audio and, and lighting. Um, so without his knowledge, like I wouldn't be at the point where I am now. Um, yeah, so like his experience is definitely really uh, useful. <laughs> um, and, and he was yeah. the one who was working on his own similar documentary project, but that got canceled, is that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, how, how did that, could you take us through the whole sort of meeting process and how, say for example, uh, did, was there any kind of a skepticism or anything about uh, taking someone new on board with this project and how mm -hmm. did you, mm. yeah. So we're actually, so between two people, it's not quite enough hands to do the work. So we actually got one more person um, who is like a budding YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he has this gear and you know, his uh, set of experiences to come into this from. So we're all very new to this. Um, but some of the challenges that have come with, uh, filming is, um, just kind of, I guess it's a little bit of like the way wedding photography is run where you, everything just happens in the moment and you can't really choreograph anything beforehand. So you can only be as prepared as possible. You bring all your gear to the place. Um, this is why I'm talking about like, uh, like big settings. So not interview sessions, cause those will be more controlled. Mm. Um, because we, like I said, we went to a meeting a couple of days ago to hear about what this agency is doing and um what news they have to share among its stakeholders and uh moving around the room was hard <laughs> uh doing um audio and filming at the same time was hard mm. uh figuring mm. out yeah like how to send people around the room and choreographing each other so we are not in each other's shots that's kind of hard <laughs> <laughs> um and at the end of the day we're just we would just be really lucky to have like 10 seconds of usable footage <laughs> um you know after like an hour and a half because at the end of the day that's probably how much we're only going to use so i think that's the appeal of making the documentary yourself is that you don't actually don't feel like you have to hold yourself to such uh ridiculously rigor, rig rigorous standards of perfection there's there's something to be yeah. Yeah, so it's not like a wedding at all in that case. <laughs> I don't have to make every single second count. But at the same time, you don't want to miss that moment because these moments only last for like a few seconds. And like that's the emotional part you want to keep for the final product. Uh, so you have to keep everything rolling. Um, make sure you have enough like SD cards and batteries around. Um, and also to keep kind of your like uh, your energy up because it's it can be very um, exhausting to just stand around and listen and just kind of wait for that moment. And you're always thinking like, am I going to use this part? Do I need to hear this right now? <laughs> um, but at the same time, like I also care about the subject matter a lot. So like I'm interested in everything about mm. it, mm. but uh, you know, the people who I'm working 
uh, with on this project. You know, they have different, uh, I guess, motivations for doing this, but at the same time, you know, we care about the people we're interviewing. I just, you know, want this to be my life, basically. So like, not everyone is as passionate as, as I can be. Um, but how long, was, how long was a typical filming day? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, no, no. Um, well, we only had our, like, first kind of unofficial one the other day, so that only lasted as long as um, the, the meeting was in session. But at the same time, there was some... I We had some parking issues, so we couldn't meet at the time I wanted to meet. I, yeah. Anyway... Um, but ideally, there would have been some time beforehand to set up everything properly and to like kind of stake out these plates and uh, places around the room and to like film, like frame everything correctly. Uh, but we were kind of pressed for time, so just did the best we could. Yeah. And, but it's only going to get better from now. No. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, oh, and when the interview sessions start coming around, that will be like really deep and really intensive, and we'll probably uh, be going to people's homes or meeting in a mutually agreed location. Um, and that's where things will get really personal and that will yeah. ideally make up the bulk of what the documentary will be. I think too, you'll, you'll find that it, it's, it will be a bit challenging and then building a personal relationship with people and visiting them in their homes is the first step to getting them to open up. And I would mm -hmm. say, I'd go back to the advice our director gave, gave everyone and it's just an interesting way to, to view the whole issue is that we were told as employees there is you don't ask what people come from you never ask it's not and she was really adamant about that she's like got we everyone here has come from something terrible and we're not here to actually talk about that like if somebody opens up to you that's fine but don't instigate it you're more here to help people in the next step step of their life mm -hmm. yeah. here to help them integrate into the united states and i thought if, if you're interviewing people, that's always an interesting and easier way to start off the conversation rather than saying, oh, tell me all the stories of where you come from. Yeah. Cut that out and say, well, tell me how things are going for you now in the United States. That's an easier way, I think, to pick up some of that. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We would be just, you know, so honored to have anybody um, agree to, you know, be in this interview. Of course, we're also willing to, you know, accommodate different levels of confidentiality for people who want to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, we're, we are all conscious of the fact that they've come from traumatic pasts and are not where they want to be, you know, home for wow. a reason. So, uh, I, and unfortunately, I don't think that's something, um, certain parts of like the United States realizes when they think about just the general, um, influx of refugees, which isn't that much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're. Well, compared globally, we do take the most, but it's out of the amount of refugees globally, it's not much. When you, say, when you say we go, David, do you mean the US or Australia? Oh, I mean the US, I'm sorry. The US. Right, yeah. <laughs> I was in the US. I mean, one of us, one of us. <laughs> when I was there, we were taking about 70 to 80,000 refugees a year. Our agency took a ton. We were resettling almost 300 um two to about 300 people a year maybe wow. yeah cases so that would be families and you know there is tremendous tremendous challenges every case is a different mm -hmm. yeah. i know that the number now the the maximum threshold has been lowered to about the i guess forty six thousand. oh that's uh, but we've I, only met about twenty seven thousand. so wait well, how wow so there's only wow yeah that's that's been 
nearly chopped. Yeah. Yeah. And you can imagine, you know, certain places of the country are, uh, I, w- I don't like, you know, have more refugees than other places. Uh, so it's not, you know, distributed equally throughout the country. Yeah. It's, it's especially, I'd also, again, employment always seems to be the key issue on that. And, mm-hmm. um, Again, we get we got a lot of them in Cleveland because they're kind of lo- lower level manufacturing jobs available there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was a di- it's a difficulty too for them finding work, convincing employers to hire them too, which is, is always very challenging. And that's something you could also ask too, because all of them are essentially looking for jobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, something that's actually quite um, incredible, or that I really admire people who are in this industry are just the connections that they make with as many people as possible because you never really know when that connection will come in handy. Mm. So um, I know for this agency, they have uh, good connections with people at like FedEx and they come over to this agency like once a month and ask, oh, does anyone want a job? Wow. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, like right on your doorstep. So I, if it wasn't for, you know, the character of these people and the mission that they have, then I don't think, you know, that opportunity yeah. would have been there. So these people are like doing really good work and uh, I just kind of want to do my part in helping that yeah. as far as possible. And with your documentary, I mean, I'm just maybe an idea too, is that sometimes it's, if given the opportunity, um, you can always interview some of the employers that actually, if they'd be willing to work with some of the refugees, there is a, uh, I'll just cut it short, but there's an unnamed manufacturer of toys for horses in Ohio. (laughs) Wait, toys and horses? Yes. I'm talking these rubber ball toys for horses, right? Uh, Um, Okay. um, Their previous workforce, unfortunately, of people in the States was just completely... Um, embroiled by drug abuse and the boss there just lost it one day and dumped the entire employee fridge via forklift into like the dumpster because they were selling drugs inside his um, outside of the employer refrigerator and he actually came to the local refugee agency which was us and hired something like 10 or 15 15 about 15 Wow. no this gets even better this horse toy factory is like over an hour outside of the city and he arranged for a van pickup service to come pick these guys up every single day and the guy was that invested in it and that he was like well not only is it the right thing to do but i'm you know i need people who are dependable at this point and i can't find them and he also you know just an amazing experience like if there was any issues with their family or them going to the hospital this employer would go the ex extra mile and he, he visited some of them in the hospital he you know made sure they got home on time in winter and just yeah it's, you, you meet people like that that are just really inspiring and i'm sure they're there in new jersey too yeah i think so i believe they are <laughs> i met a few yeah <laughs> someone, someone needs to uh, i don't know buzzfeed or or cracked.com uh, needs to go out there and interview this this guy and see what and cover the story and uh, and and uh just let other people know it's said, hey, you know, if you want dependable people, why not, why not go down to your nearest uh, refugee out- outreach center? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, some, some yeah we, we, we did get, that's one of the main, that's a, a real benefit, I think, from hiring in certain industries is that, yeah, it really seemed to tilt that way. So have you, have you had any success so far in meeting 
some refugees in the New Jersey area or asylum seekers? I I actually have, but I can't say more about who they are. Oh. <laughs> but um, one thing that I'm I'm happy to see uh, as a service that this agency is providing. Um, one of them is you know resume building. So kind of correcting or not correcting but critiquing their yep. experiences and trying to make it presentable for potential employers mm. um and also like asking people to uh offer driving lessons because like you had mentioned like many people don't have licenses <laughs> and if you're not mobile in a small state like new jersey you can't really get to places so yeah um it's yeah so that's important it's very funny when the, the driver's license you mentioned that um that was actually an, an amazing priority of every refugee that, that came through was like, I have to get my driver's license. Like you've been here a week and they're like, I have to get my driver's license. And then like three weeks, three months later, like you see, you know, somebody, I just got a job working at the bread factory, driving a Lexus around. And I'm like, I don't even want to know how you got this car. <laughs> like, oh, I got it on this credit card. It's great. And you're just like, oh no. <laughs> oh. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, something here. <laughs> well, this just uh, reminded me because uh, Rebecca, when we were uh, messaging each other on LinkedIn, uh, I had a question as to whether there was anything special about New Jersey in particular and how it approaches uh, refugee and asylum seekers' rights. Is there something special about New Jersey that sets it apart from other states? Hmm. Well. I can't say that I know of anything that sets New Jersey apart in that regard, um, but- You're supposed to say it's the best state ever because I live here. <laughs> I think I said that when I wasn't living here. <laughs> uh, and I'll say that to any New Yorker. <laughs> um, in your but, Just kidding. Um, but I, I guess the fact that I live here and, um, and I've always understood that despite being bullied at a young age, that New Jersey, is um, one of the most densely populated places in like the world, yeah. partially because of our proximity to New York City, um, and also because of that, like because we we're you know so close to Ellis Island traditionally, we've had many 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 immigrants here. So mm. New Jersey is extremely diverse. And um, this past uh, fall winter, we elected a Democratic governor. So mm. um, I think that things will be changing for. For the better <laughs> if i'm gonna put my politics out there um Bold so prediction. yeah <laughs> blue wave go um <laughs> i think uh, um, blue refers to democrats so <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what people are hoping for in 2020 a blue wave they say to come over anyway um also like i said with the international rescue committee uh having a center a detention center also like so close to to us, um, many refugees do get sent here, um, and then some get sent to this agency that I'm partnered with. So, I think um, like New Jersey has the potential to be a model for uh, mm. showing how we welcome people who are different, you know, despite you know the own, my own past <laughs> here. Uh, you know, that doesn't have any implication on how we treat others in the future. I think so. Yeah. I guess with now that we've talked a bit about politics and <laughs> as as much as you're comfortable talking about with this current uh, Trump administration, I mean, how has it changed? I mean, we, you know, here in Australia, we hear about his comments about Mexican immigration, things yeah. like that. But I'm curious to know that from 
your the field that you're working in mm -hmm. how that has translated what has changed yeah i was here when he got elected too so i don't even know you could tell me <laughs> yeah, yeah so i was i was in japan in my last year in japan when he got elected i remember i was in elementary school all the tvs were on and uh, my students were like looking at me with their mouths struck like it's a joke, right? It's a joke. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we all like kind of just hug each other at that time. Um, but that was a huge reason why I came back here, to be honest, mm. because I knew that like I couldn't really understand what a Trump America would feel like if I wasn't in America. And I was also particularly worried about you know, potential immigrants, refugees, migrant workers, asylum seekers in America and how they would fare under this administration. So um, like back earlier on in his uh, you know, presidency, uh, he instituted that now um, permissible, legally permissible Muslim ban. <laughs> yeah. And that caused, you know, a flux of um, like lawyers to go to airports and do pro bono work and try to yeah. fix and I, that was just so heroic and amazing to me. And um, because of like his influences and you know his cabinet, um, the Department of State has doesn't have a lot of money to give to agencies, and er they're just downsizing all over the country. Yeah. Um, so I knew that the way that refugees were being treated, which was you know such a growing and scary issue, especially when I was in Japan, um, because just a year or two prior, you know everything happening out of Syria was like every headline. Um, like not only because like Japan was kind of caught up in that as well when you know two of their journalists were killed by mm -hmm. ISIS, so like it was it always felt like a really personal issue to me, um, and also with my own parents being immigrants and me knowing tons of people who's who've also been in this situation, uh, the way so um, David Miliband, who is the president of the International Rescue Committee, has he has a TED talk and he has this quote. That says uh, the duty of the 21st century is how we treat our strangers, mm. and I think that, like, I needed to be here to understand the ways that we were treating our strangers, and it's really um, scary to just see, like, the way Trump thinks. Maybe not him personally, but like what he inspires in people who love him is just so. Um, like yeah. offensive and insensitive and rude and crass and narrow-minded and bigoted yeah. and violent <laughs> to people. Yeah. Yep. Um, so like I like there was just a school shooting in Santa Fe in uh yeah. middle school in Texas, high school. Yeah. Um and like a guy with like a Make America Great Again hat showed up on campus with a gun. And news reporters surrounded him. They were asking him, like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm here to help. I'm here to support. And then they're asking, like, how do you think you're supporting anybody right now? And he's like, I'm just here to make America great again. Uh, so, like, this kind of belief where people are kind of being less afraid to be forward with their, you know, prejudices, um, mm -hmm. their fears, uh, and kind of turn Americans against one another is sort of what I wanted to be in the middle of <laughs> to help fix from the inside out somehow in my own way. I think that's, so, that's a really inspiring comment there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just I would only take an add to that is that you're absolutely right because there because it's <laughs> almost by something awful happening is more of an inspiration to do good in a way because yeah. it's, it's come to the point where it will and it is coming more to a point where you can't 
you cannot sit and be passive, I guess, in that kind of situation in the United States. And, yeah, I couldn't. And like, I think. I, oh, keep going, keep going. Oh, I'm just going to say, my, me and my cousin to chat about this online, we're both pessimistic independents. And his point was, well, he said there was at least a lot of great good to come from a buffoon being elected because it actually, no, his way, and this is a weird perspective, but he said for the first time, I think it'll really focus people to inspire people to become more locally involved in their own communities yes. and be more hands-on rather than just yes. leaving it up to um, the you know federal government or the executive administration to solve everything. Yes. You have to do this yourself and you have to take responsibility for that. So Yeah, for sure. Like, I think, um, one of the very first things that I did when I came back to America was kind of look up, like, just if you go to eventbrite.com and you just Google, uh, not Google, but search refugees and see what events come up. Um, I went to those <laughs> and um, especially if they were just, you know, in New Jersey or New York, I didn't mind going anywhere. But there was one uh, talk that I went to and it was given by um, some educators in one of the counties nearby me. And, um, it was led by a librarian uh, to these like local young uh, school teachers. And it was on discussing immigration to your students because um, the town, one of the larger cities around me is an unofficial sanctuary city. Um, mm -hmm. So that, what that means is that the local government won't necessarily comply with ICE <laughs> when they come asking or demanding for uh, like people's like personal information. So like I was like blown away because you always hear about you know bigger cities like New York or like Los Angeles being like sanctuary cities, the whole state of California basically. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that the one that I went to school was such a city. So uh, that made me very proud of what was happening here. Um, and everybody in that room, they were you know librarians or teachers, but they were all they all called themselves like political activists and. Uh, I think of myself sort of like that. It's like a title I can't exactly shirk off while I embark on a project like this, mm. um, nor it, nor can I kind of not have an opinion on the way <laughs> things yeah. are going because it directly affects the work that these people are doing. It affects the the people you know that they're trying to serve. Yeah. So one of my frustrations with the previous administration was that on one hand. You know, he, you know, Mr. Obama was wonderfully well-spoken and eloquent, but in the basis factual matter, we did deport the most, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> some of the, the highest rates of deportation ever. Well, President Obama was in his administration was cruel, and I think people are willing to overlook that because it felt like you were part of a very positive wave. Mm. With you know, Mr. Trump, there's you, there's no overlooking anything there. <laughs> like yeah. you, you can't even. He's not even at least trying to smooth things over by talking nicely. Actually, how was that um, experience of like, like understanding all these deportations were happening under well, President Obama? I think it was quite frustrating because I was just working at that agency in 2013, 14, so that was towards Obama's like later half of his second term. And I think the reality of it is that on one hand, you know, he was an amazingly well-spoken president. He really did, as a human being, truly sympathize, I think, with the causes that were happening with that, right? Mm -hmm. But he was also up against the challenges of dealing with the large government varied opinions where it wasn't a popular issue to support. And at that time, a huge issue was going on was, for example, and it's still an issue where 
you know, 40, something like 30, 40,000 undocumented children, like under 18 were jumping over, coming from like Guatemala and um, uh, Honduras and so on were flooding into Texas at the time, right? And mm -hmm. our wonderfully well-spoken president didn't, you know, in the end was housing these kids in just like ridiculous conditions, you know? <laughs> and that's kind of the reality, like, Kind of the hypocrisy, I guess, that was in my front of my eyes, and I found mm -hmm. I, I'm still conflicted. I don't have an answer to it, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that, it's good that you mentioned that because uh, in case anyone would yeah. uh, uh, accuse this this podcast episode of having a liberal bias, but no, see, we have balanced views. Here. No, it's I think in the end, it's not liberal or or um, Republican or Democrat or anything. It's just mm. kind of what the actual policies and how we end up treating them ends up being. So. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a challenging issue. That's that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it. I think it's really a, becoming more of a global phenomenon. Probably starting with the end of Obama's presidency into whatever going on with Trump and Brexit. So hmm. yeah, because, so, yeah, you do see that sort of nationalistic trend growing in other democracies around the world. Um, yeah. But I don't have you know anywhere as personal a tab on those countries as I do here. So no, uh, and. I think it's just the what what's the generic slogan? Think globally, act locally. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Be better in a way to have your tab on your local community and working with the refugee community there because I don't know we all don't have enough hands to solve <laughs> the global issue because it's such a yeah, yeah, yeah. divisive issue. You know, I like for me that all really boiled down to like just the right to move, just the right mm -hmm. to go somewhere, oh. and like. Like us as Jets, like we were so fortunate <laughs> and mm. welcomed and honored in Japan. And it just didn't feel right to continue, uh, I don't know, just being in that position while others were suffering <laughs> in a way. Like for me, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. Mm. You know, it would be better to have a job, I guess. But at the same time, I know that the work that I'm doing now will be worthwhile. Um, so I'm excited about, about this project and excited about also being employed one day, <laughs> uh, hopefully in something meaningful related to my end goals. Um, mm. people tell me not to be so picky, but mm. I kind of am. For Australia's track record on humanitarian issues, check out the footnotes for links that provide stats and analysis by people far more smarter and articulate than myself. Join us for the second part. In the next episode, we'll talk about politics, the more typical experiences of moving back home off the jet, and share some funny stories about pets, if you like that. Chat soon. Bye-bye. Podcast is supported by Claire, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations, that is otherwise an independent project by me, Aiden Law. All opinions and ideas discussed on the Aftershad podcast do not necessarily represent the views or position of Claire or any organization associated with Claire. Thank you as always to everyone who has supported and made this project of mine possible. People, people, people.